Welcome to episode 57 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. First, a big thank you to Coots for its continuing sponsorship. Anyone can visit coots.com to find out more about how they could help high net worth clients with their bespoke borrowing solutions. Depending on your stage in life, you might be parents with very young children assessing where you're currently living or looking to upsize. Often you can spend months looking for a dream that simply doesn't exist. So some people end up buying and developing from scratch or renovating what they have. I've had so many friends who've given up the search because that four bedroom farmhouse with a lovely garden in a nice village can be very elusive. I know exactly what you mean. And certainly since lockdown and COVID, people are more and more desperate to find a home they really feel they can settle for good in, raise a family and work from. The good news is that whether you find a tumble down place with potential to develop, or if you decide to revamp your existing house to make it work for you, Coots could be your supportive partner. Coots will look at your total assets and look beyond the obvious when assessing affordability. Visit coots.com to find out more. Now, we're going to kick off this week with Chris Levine, the British-based light artist who most of our listeners will know for his hugely popular and instantly recognisable images of the Queen. In 2004, he was commissioned by the Jersey Heritage Trust to create a portrait of Her Majesty to celebrate 800 years of the island's allegiance to the crown. And he famously portrayed the Queen with her eyes shut and made Chris Levine a household name as an artist. He's also created portraits of the Dalai Lama, Kate Moss and Grace Jones, but now he has a very different solo exhibition at Houghton Hall in Norfolk. Well, I had no idea it was that Chris Levine we're talking to. <laughs> How exciting. I want a portrait with my eyes shut, which is not very difficult because <laughs> I spend most of my time asleep. Regular listeners who've been with us for a while will know that from our past podcast, we actually interviewed David the Marquis of Chumley, about the Anish Kapoor exhibition there, which I managed to get to see. And also that I absolutely love Houghton Hall. Houghton, of course, was commissioned in 1722 by Sir Robert Walpole, who moved an entire village to give himself a better view. It's on regular, exciting displays of contemporary art. And this, the seventh show, is no exception. Chris's show is called 528 Hertz Love Frequency and features a series of new holographs, prints, and large immersive laser and LED installations. It's been created specifically for the house and grounds, and we are thrilled that after this endless introduction <laughs> by me and Charlotte, we can actually speak to Chris. Good morning, Chris. Morning, guys. Morning. So lovely to have you with us. Tell us, tell our listeners, rather, what they're going to see. The first thing is basically a monumental spherical sphere on the front lawn that towers above the house. Stunning, uh, but I'm not sure I can describe it, so I'd much rather you did, Chris. Yeah, what's it all about? <laughs> you know, for me, you know, a lot of my work, you know, increasingly, you know, becomes informed out of meditation and, you know, trying to take the audience to a point of stillness, which is a meditative state. Five to eight hertz it relates to the middle note on a, a series of, of sound frequencies, which relate to sacred geometry. So the middle note, if you like, five to eight, not five to nine or five to seven, but at exactly five to eight hertz the energy system and that the heart chakra re resonates dna itself resonates not at five two seven or five two two nine but exactly five to eight the middle note on this ancient scale at which a lot of gregorian chant music is composed and played mm -hmm. using solfeggio and so the the work itself you stand underneath this sphere and there's a very collimated beam of sound 
So you stand and the sound beam goes through you and it's at this modulating frequency, but around five to eight hertz. So the idea is that while you're being bathed in this very pure sound signal, very quickly it brings you into a, a meditative state. And I think with the craziness of the world at, at the moment, then you know, even just for moments of stillness can be you know, really revitalizing. Well, I mean, obviously, Hausman's never seen anything like this before. Have you been there and watched audiences go into this state? How, how does it work? You, you go under it one at a time or, or what? Yeah, well, we've, we've extended the, 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 if you like, the prism on the sound to make mm. it a bit wider than just one person. But no, the response has been, you know, quite phenomenal. Because I think, you know, expect the unexpected. There's a beam in the sphere that's locked onto the North Star. You know, the, the aligning all these different grids, if you like, I see them as like kind of opt octaves of reality. So you, you, you're standing configured within this, you know, the, the, the physical, the celestial, the earth energies, you know, conceptually, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I'm, I'm working and playing with these, these ideas to bring people and to bring people into a state where you're not thinking, it's the space between thought. And just people have been, I sent a picture the other night, there are about 50 people just lying underneath the molecule. Remember, this is winter, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> lying down, looking up, immersed in these beams and just very much in the present moment. You said there are 50 people lying underneath it because I was when you were describing it, I was suddenly imagining huge queues to get under yeah, me the too. laser beam. But presumably, so you don't have to queue for hours to get modulated. <laughs> well, for it to touch you, and, you know, and indeed, I mean, there are different. You can these beams carry on traveling. So whilst there's a, a you know, people tend to gravitate to stand underneath the sphere and in, within the tripod, you know, those beams carry on into the distance. So the you know the entire landscape you know is an immersive field of light and as well you know you have you have the norfolk sky you know as a background and you know every day you, you might get some 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 drizzle you know in the air some atmospheric conditions which makes the lasers behave differently so it's very much connected with the elements well from what i'm hearing it, it certainly makes you feel good it sounds absolutely amazing. But, 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 but what else are we going to see? Because that's just the start of the exhibition, oh, yes, isn't it? I good mean, it's... point. There's a lot more to talk about. There's a, a selection of portraits that haven't been seen together um, in, in this way. And it's, that's, you know, a kind of ring-fenced aspect of the, of the show. But a lot of the light works and the more um, experiential works are spread across the, the grounds and in other parts of the house. You know, originally the idea of doing an installation outside and then, you know, these other ideas coming. And then the, I remember there was a point where, where David Lochomi said, you know, th this is a show. This is not an installation now. We, you know, there's a different facets to it. And it, it's quite a, yeah, it's, it's been a, a lifetime in the making. <laughs> the show actually is between 4.30 and 9. It's not open in the morning because obviously it's a light display. Uh, and tragically, it's only on till the 23rd of December. So we've all got to get our skates on to get down there as well. Now, let us, Chris, just tell us, since we only, we've only got you till the sort of middle of December at Houghton, what are you going to do next year that we can go and see? Uh, well, but, but it's been put, one thing has been put back in the other, um, but Glastonbury, it was their 50th anniversary in 2020, and I was commissioned by the Evises to work on this concept we're developing called the Eye Project. We're going to be doing a, a, a light and sound installation called the Eye Project, which will project over the entire site of Glastonbury. God, how exciting. That's yeah. going to be absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us all about it.
Thank you, guys. The Courtauld was founded in 1932 on the belief that everyone should have the opportunity to engage with art. The gallery opens its doors to the public again after a three-year transformation project, the largest in its history. The redevelopment has been overseen by Sterling Prize-winning architects Witherford Watson Mann, with gallery designed by Nissan Richards Studio, all supported by an £11 million grant from the National Lottery Heritage Fund, but also another £10 million from the philanthropist Sir Leonard and Lady Blavatnik among other supporters. The Courtauld has a major collection, ranging from the Middle Ages to the 20th century, and now the quality and scope of the collection is going to be seen as never before. It's obviously a major and extremely exciting moment for the gallery, and here to tell us about it is Professor Deborah Swallow, the Courtauld's Merit Rousing Director. Good morning, Deborah. Uh, good morning, Ed. It's lovely to have a chance to talk to you. Good morning, Debbie. Um, it's lovely to have you with us. Now, neither of us has been to see the new Courtauld yet, but having read about it, it sounds as if this incredible collection is really getting a chance to be seen to its best possible advantage. The Courtauld has works by Rubens, medieval and early Renaissance paintings and decorative arts, paintings by the Bloomsbury Group, world-famous impressionists, and much, much more. So can you start by telling our listeners what, for you, are the absolute highlights of the new Courtauld? The absolute highlight must be the restoration of the great room at the top of the building, which was the original great room of the Royal Academy, now the Louis Vuitton uh, great room. It's where we now house the Impressionists and the Post-Impressionists. And they, seeing the collection of Samuel Courtauld all in one large room, displayed in such a way that you keep displaying keep discovering the works as you move around the room. You enter this glorious space, you see ahead of you two uh, very famous, perhaps slightly infamous now, Gauguin's. You then cast your eye to the right, you see a wall of Cézanne's, you turn to the left and you see the bar, the, uh, the Folie Berger by Édouard Manet. You go on and you turn a corner and you see Van Gogh's famous self-portrait with bandaged deer, and then you turn again, and there's a delicious uh, wall of small Seurat sketches. It's, it's treat after treat after treat, and, and um, displayed, I hope, people will agree in such a way that you can really, really look closely at the works, uh, that, which is something that we've always wanted people to be able to do at the Courtauld. So that is perhaps one of the highlights, because you ascend the great stairs, which are so also so historically famous, um, and you reach that room, as it were, as the culmination of your journey through the building and through the collection. Absolutely fantastic. And obviously it is, it is interesting, isn't it? Because I think the Courtauld is housed in the building, which was arguably the world's first purpose-built gallery, because it's where the Royal Academy uh, was established. Exactly. And that is, and that is the, sort of the great room to which I was particularly referring, and which was, of course, the site of the original Royal Academy summer exhibitions, which have continued you know, year on year from then till, till now, albeit now in Burlington House. So it's, it, the building is extremely important. It was the home for not only the Royal Academy, but also the Royal Society and the uh, Society of Antiquaries, and has some beautiful, beautiful main reception rooms in it, which is where uh, we now display uh, some of our earlier works in what we now call the Blavatnik Fine Rooms. And they too have been totally uh, re restored, uh, redisplayed with fabulous lighting and beautiful showcases for those works which we couldn't show so much of before. 
but a key there is a restored and fully conserved altarpiece by uh, Sandro Botticelli, one of the most, the largest Botticelli in this country, and one which people will finally be able to appreciate in its beautifully uh, conserved and restored state. It was hugely emotional seeing that being put back up, really emotional. But have you built a new frame for it? We have indeed. It's, and what's fascinating, and it's true of the whole building and everything we've done, it's a mixture of what I call high technology and superb artisan craftsmanship. And the frame is handcrafted, hand-carved in this country. But its design comes from knowledge of the Florentine churches in which the Botticelli would have originally been displayed uh, well, been, ha- been seen as an altarpiece, uh, but also from the research that was possible when the conservation work was done because the design sketches for the altarpiece emerged on the back of the panel. You're going to be fighting them off when you have your Van Gogh exhibition because it's going to be a pretty unique Van Gogh exhibition. Indeed. We have managed uh, to expand the, the, the space of the gallery, but the Van Gogh exhibition is the first official... Uh, incoming sort of com- uh, temporary exhibition which we have curated but bringing together the self-portraits Van Gogh's self-portraits from the whole of his career and that too is extremely exciting. You mentioned the fabulous staircase um, I gather you've also commissioned the artist Cecily Brown to paint the curved wall at the top of it can you describe that for our listeners? I'll, tr- I'll, tr- I'll try it's, it's, <laughs> it's first, it's first the context um, the, the, the site at the top of the staircase is a place which once held a painting in the 18th century, a long-lost long painting um, by the artist Giovanni Battista Cipriani. And we were thrilled to be able to uh, have support to commission a work by Cecily, Cecily Brown. So it's, it's, it's this work, it's on a curved wall. In a way, she, as a woman, is challenging the great um, art historical sort of issue of the male gaze. This is the female gaze at the male. So we flipped the coin. But the, within this very complex, it almost is like a landscape of, of, of shape, figure, colour, you begin to see, when you look long enough, you see elements of Rubens. You see elements of, 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 of Manet's um, Déjeuner sur l'herbe. You see other things which suggest work in our collection. Unexpectedly, there's a wonderful connection between that and, as you glance to your right through the door, the great Oscar Kokoschka triptych. We're very excited by it. And it, it, we hope it, it will slightly shake up people's expectations or any, any sense that the courtyard is not constantly on the move. Can you tell us a bit more about that kakosha? Because it's eight, it's over eight metres long, isn't it? And it hasn't been seen for over a decade. Exactly. It's, it's the largest work in our collection. It's a triptych, so it's in three uh, major elements. It depicts themes which Kokoschka was so deeply engaged with, which were the, the experience of the Second World War and anxieties about the, so the future of the world even in the post-war era. So it shows the, the, so the, the, the Prometheus in a new light. The, the, the myth of Prometheus was that he continued to, as well, refresh the world with uh, the creativity that he brought. This particular version 
is actually questioning what that fire has ultimately done in terms of technology. Is technology a good thing or a bad thing? And so it, the whole sequence of the painting, I think, speaks hugely now to today's concerns uh, to do with the environment, to do with what we have done with our technological developments and what the future might be. It sounds absolutely fantastic. And I know Ed's already uh, mentioned the Van Gogh that's that's coming in February. But um, on that top floor um, in your temporary exhibition space, what, what have you got coming up immediately as, as you open? We have one of the most exciting um, new acquisitions. The artist Linda Carson and her late husband, uh, Howard Carson, have over decades uh, collected superb um, quality works on paper from the 20th century. And Howard sadly died a couple of years ago. And Linda has given us the a collection of over 25 works, which we are able to show in the first showing in our new exhibition suite. Uh, this involves, not only it adds to our Cezanne collection, but it also brings to the Courtauld's collection works by masters um, that we haven't had in the collection before, uh, Willem de Kooning, uh, Giacometti, uh, Philip Guston, Cy Twombly. Uh, you know, I, I, lose, I lose my memory because the names <laughs> are so great, I can't quite believe it. Uh, Georg, Georg Baselitz, um, you know, carry on as it were, and, and, and they're added. It is, it is the most exciting collection. I think people will, again, walk into these two rooms and really be uplifted. And it includes some lesser known names, like a, a wonderful artist called Philip Souter, who was um, consigned to a mental institution quite early in life. But the two works by him are perhaps some of the most visually striking of the lot and, 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 and sort of speak to one. And as soon as one understands a little about his history, it, it, it carries so much more meaning, I think, for everybody today, um, both about issues about mental health, but how it was treated in the past and the and often the creativity that, that, that can be very much part of that or can be a way of... Uh, people expressing themselves when they're unable to do in other ways. It, it's very moving, very moving. Thank you so much, Debbie. Yes, thank you. Well, thank you very much. Wilton's Music Hall near Tower Bridge has been named as a magical venue and one of the most atmospheric theatres in London. And for anyone who hasn't been there, it is pretty special. It's done alley and you really do feel you're stepping into a Dickensian part of London. Its history dates back, in fact, to the 1690s. And it's been an alehouse, a Methodist hall, but also the most important surviving music hall anywhere. It was built as the Victorian Music Hall by John Wilton in 1859, designed to bring West End glamour and entertainment to the deprived East End. There's still a John Wilton room in the building, which hosts a permanent display of its history, and the building's been beautifully restored. I say beautifully because it's been left with its character intact in all its crumbling, peeling glory, and much the better for it, as it really has an authentic atmosphere. It's renowned for putting on quirky shows. I've seen all kinds of things there, including a brilliant production of Macbeth. Ed was saying just now he saw Fiona Shaw read The Wasteland there. Anyway, it's now celebrating the Christmas season with The Child in the Snow, a retelling of Elizabeth Gaskell's famous ghost story, the old nurse's story, which was published seven years before Wilton's Music Hall opened. The Child in the Snow opened on Friday, and here to tell us all about it is the writer who adapted it, Piers Torday. Good morning, Piers. Good morning. It's great to be here. Hi, Piers. So Wilton's Music Hall, then, is the first example of levelling up that we have in history. <laughs> Completely transformed uh, 
the East End, using culture. Even then, in the mid-19th century, people understood the importance of culture in urban regeneration, as they would have called it in 1859. Anyway, it's wonderful to have you on. You've got a great track record for writing for Wiltons. You've written for Wiltons, you've written for TV, you've written plays. You wrote The Box of Delights for Wiltons, based on John Macefield's novel. Uh, the Sunday Times named your Christmas Carol at Wiltons as the best Christmas show of 2019. So it's no wonder you're back. The Child in the Snow has already had fantastic reviews. So this time you're going frightening and scary rather than cosy for kids. Even your website has a warning for the snowflakes. <laughs> that this is a ghost story and not for those of a nervous disposition. So tell us all about it. So, yes, we've done all sorts of uh, wonderful Christmas shows there, as Charlotte was saying. Wiltons... Um, is the most extraordinary space. It is the oldest music hall in Britain. And uh, is that a ghost frankly, dog barking? Yes, that's dog a ghost dog. I apologise. The ghost dog may occasionally intrude Believe on this. Believe me, my um, dog, my dog will not bark at all until I start recording a podcast. Then she's off. Uh, yeah, no, he's pre he's pretty much the same. He knows. Um, I am sorry about that. It's it's this fabulous old music hall in the East End, and it is generally quite a spooky building. Last year they did an opera production uh, filmed in lockdown of Turn of the Screw where they took over the whole building and I was watching this during lockdown at home and it was completely, I mean it's a terrifying story anyway Turn of the Screw but filmed in Wilton's I just thought gosh we have to do an actual ghost story there. We'd done Christmas Carol as you mentioned and that obviously has some ghosts but they're slightly more of a festive familiar nature but I noticed when we did the one scary ghost in Christmas Carol who's of course the ghost of Christmas to come there was a real palpable reaction in the audience we did it very simply just with a kind of almost with a sheet as in traditional ghost style and it really worked and so we started searching around for a ghost story to use and one thing we definitely wanted to do was do a ghost story told by a woman because actually women were at the forefront of uh, sort of ghost writing in the Victorian age. But conveniently enough, a lot of later male editors and anthologists uh, didn't always include them in their collection. So some of them are less well known, but one of the most famous ghost stories of the time was the old nurse's story. Now, most people know Elizabeth Gaskell for Cranford, of course, and bonnets and gossip and uh, portraits of small town life. But what is less known about her is that she absolutely loved ghost stories. She once tried to read one of her ghost stories to Charlotte Bronte, who was staying just before bedtime. And Charlotte Bronte said, absolutely no way. Uh, <laughs> I am going to bed because if you read one of your stories, she said, I'm going to be kept awake all night by thoughts of ominous gloom. This ghost story is inspired by a visit she paid to a sort of rather crumbling mansion house in uh, northern England. And she visited with some friends around twilight one evening. And she found the kind of caretaker of her. And she said, can we go and look around the deserted wing that hasn't fallen down? And she was told on no account because that the ghost of the old Lord was stalking the corridors, ripping up documents, trying to find the legal paper that would solve a family dispute that had basically meant the end of his hold on the, on the home. And this really stuck in her mind. And Charles Dickens asked her to write a story for his um, household Words periodical. And she wrote this story called The Old Nurse's Story. And I'm not going to give too much away, but it's set in a very austere, remote house on the edge of the Northumbrian Moors at Christmas. And a young woman finds herself there 
she's been orphaned. She's from she's from the East End of London, and she's basically living all alone with this very elderly lady of the manor. And some very strange things start to happen at night, and particularly when it snows. But gradually, she begins to realise that perhaps what she should be afraid of is not so much outside in the snow, but inside in the house. Oh, I've seen a trailer. I mean, it looks pretty scary. How many people are in it? It's a tiny cast, isn't it? There's just a, there's just two people in it. One of my um, first theatrical experiences that I really remember is being going on a school trip to the Woman in Black when it was just oh, opened. Yes. And it was in the in the West End, like not just in its permanent home, but it just transferred to the West End. And people literally and screamed in that, don't they? They really do scream. I, I screamed. Yeah. <laughs> it was utterly ter- It was utterly terrifying. And and of course, that is just two people. Um, there are little bits of stagecraft, but it doesn't really rely on much. It's storytelling in two people, and that was my um, kind of inspiration for this. And I, I don't want to sort of overreg the pudding, but I've I've never done something before. We're just in the technical rehearsal. It's there's something about that building. <laughs> It's quite, it's sort of doing a ghost story there. It's a bit like um, ordering a coffee and someone's put in two extra shots rather than one. It's, it's double, the, double, the, double the spook. Amazing. What an incredible show it's going to be. I do remember my dad used to run this place called Cumberland Lodge in Windsor Great Park. And every Christmas, uh, one of the sort of long-serving members of staff would tell ghost stories with Princess Margaret in the room because she was the visitor to Cumberland Lodge and it was the most evocative evening. I, I think it's the most fabulous Christmas tradition is telling, just like you were saying, telling uh, ghost stories. I mean, M.R. James, mm. when he wrote his ghost stories, he would gather his friends round at Christmas and that's where he'd kind of test them out. I think and we've got to revive I, this tradition. We've got to get yeah. some M.R. James and some Elizabeth Gaskell books and just read out these short ghost stories. Yeah, okay. oh, it's, it's, it's very interesting what you say about uh, women reading them as well. Because I remember mm. as a child, my aunt would tell really scary ghost stories. It is quite a woman's, it's a sort of witchy thing to do, isn't it? I suppose it, it is. Lots of people were enjoying the element, you know, and Anne of during lockdown were enjoying Anne of Green Gables on Netflix. But I'm not sure many people know that Ella Montgomery, who wrote those very charming stories, also wrote some really quite dark. Um, horror tales, as did E. Nesbitt, you know, who wrote Five Children and Nick, yeah. but she also wrote some really spooky stories. So it was a it was a big thing. And it's on until when, Piers? It's on until New Year's Eve. Oh, I brilliant. don't think Christmas shows should go on beyond Christmas. It always feels like having a mince pie after New Year's Day. It feels feels wrong. Well, thank you so much for coming on and telling us about it. It sounds absolutely brilliant and we'll be there. Thanks for having me. See you there. Just before we go, we were talking to Debbie Swallow at the new Courtauld Gallery before either Ed or I had managed to visit. But we've both been since and it really is fabulous. I think one of the best things about the gallery is that it's small enough to see it all in one go. But it's absolutely packed with wonderful, seriously important paintings and the collection is stunning. It really is actually wonderful. I'm not one given to hyperbole, but I unlike me, <laughs> unlike Charlotte, <laughs> goes on about everything being absolutely marvelous. But what I loved about it is so several things. First of all, it was, I, I, it's very co- it's very intimate. Yes, it's like somebody's large grand house, but compared to say an enormous uh, gallery, even the National Gallery, which is quite small, but other big galleries like the V&A, this is a very intimate gallery. 
it made me think, God, if only I worked in Somerset House, this is just the sort of perfect place to pop into for 10 minutes. You can yeah. do it all in one go, but you can also, it's so beautifully laid out, you can, you know, spend an hour in one room, an hour in another. It's got portraits that you will recognise, like uh, Van Dyke with his ear cut off on a bandage, but also arresting... Goff, I mean, rather. <laughs> Van <Goff>. to Dyke. <laughs> Did I say Van Dyke? Yeah, I love the idea Van of Van Dyke. with his ear cut off. There's no, there's no, there's no earless Van Dyke. I don't know if there's a single Van Dyke there. I literally stopped in my tracks uh, with an amazing Giacometti nude, just literally stopped me in my tracks, couldn't take my eyes off it. And obviously I'm a big Cezanne fan, so it's got that, but it's also got wonderful Renaissance pictures. The Cezanne's... Uh, uh- Glorious, is, I agree. It is, yeah. it is, it is glorious. I'll tell you what I thought was brilliant about it as well. It's so clearly labelled. I know that sounds a really small thing, but it was just, you didn't ever have to look for any information. It was all just the right amount, where you wanted it, all very clear. Oh, no, and... I totally agree with that. I mean, I'm a label fetishist. I, I <laughs> loathe the way museums do their labels and where they put them and the tiny fonts they use. I mean, it's pathetic. Anyway. Yeah, no, that was really good. Anyway, we love that. And you might also remember a few weeks ago, Nathaniel Parker came onto the podcast to talk about playing Henry VIII in The Mirror and the Light. Now, Ed and I have since both seen that too. I went last week and loved it. And even my 17-year-old was absolutely riveted. I think Nat and Ben Miles worked brilliantly together. And I actually loved the Duke of Norfolk. He was played as a very small, very nasty little man. He was uh, absolutely brilliant. But also, uh, <laughs> Matt Mark Parker was, of course, uh, fabulous. And Ben Miles, of course. And it was, just, yeah, I think it just worked uh, extremely well. It was very, very, I mean, it was lavish costumes. Lavish yeah. costumes. And yeah. um, the cast were magnificent. Uh, and um, you're right, the Duke of Norfolk was absolutely hilarious as he schemed against um, Cromwell and a, a sort of wonderful snob. Yes, yes. <laughs> Couldn't bear the fact that he had to work with this sort of butcher's son. <laughs> no, it's excellent. Do go. There's still just time to get a ticket. Thank you so much again to Coots, our sponsor. And do visit the website coots.com and discover if its bespoke borrowing solutions could help you achieve that balanced life we're all in search of. Though we do have to remind you that your home may be repossessed if you do not keep up repayments on your mortgage. Credit is subject to status and fees may apply. But that is all we have time for on the podcast this week. You know where to find us at countryandtownhouse.co.uk where you can also find our sister podcast, House Guest with Carol Annette, and of course our newsletters because you add forward slash newsletter to our web address. Thanks so much for listening and we'll be back again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.